are entering the Freedom Hut. The Iran deal is toast. President Trump has decided that he was going to uh, back out of it after all. Was this the right move? What will it mean for the region? Plus, follow-up to the Eric Schneider min bombshell from yesterday, the uh, former Attorney General of the State of New York. We have more on that for you and a whole lot more. Stay right there. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating U.S. nuclear sanctions on the Iranian regime. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. President Trump taking the move. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. President Trump uh, following through on what he's been talking about for quite a while here, which is that the uh, Iran deal was a bad deal. He said it. And so now he's not going to be bound by it. You know, I, I think it's so interesting with the media hysteria about this because you see them acting like this is going to flip the world upside down. This is going to lead to war. It's going to lead to chaos in the streets. Really high oil prices. I'm here to tell you it's not going to lead to any of that. What it will do is put the mullahs in Tehran on notice, let them know that their behavior in the Middle East and around the world, really, but their behavior in their own region is unacceptable, that we will not sit back and fail to use the leverage that we have because when it comes to Iran, we have considerable economic leverage, which is what we're going to be using here. That's what sanctions are all about. But we're not going to sit back and let them uh, have their way and be bad actors without consequence across the Middle East. That's just unacceptable to us. You see, we went into this whole thing, and I mean we, meaning the United States, under the Obama administration with a winning hand. We were in the driver's seat. We had all the leverage we needed to get concessions from the Iranian regime, But Obama wasn't looking for concessions. Obama wanted a foreign policy legacy. You know, this really comes down to one's worldview, one's uh, political beliefs, one's sense of America and its role in the world. Democrats seem to think that if we are nice or nicer to very bad people, very bad regimes and countries, uh, then they will do things the way we want them to at some point, indetermined, uh, undetermined up to this point, but at some point in the future. I don't see it that way. I don't think you see it that way. And when you have leverage, when you have a country like Iran, it's not China, it's not even Russia, a country that we can effectively bend much more to our will through economic actions without having to go to war, without a full-scale invasion. It seems to me it's completely legitimate to use those levers instead of abandoning them, which is what the 
Obama administration largely did. Look, I'm not going to pretend there was nothing to the Iran deal. I think it did slow some aspects of Iran's nuclear program down. Didn't stop them, though. Didn't set them back. And it was a slowdown with the promise of victory, right? It was like putting Iran's nuclear ambitions on the path of the tortoise from the tortoise and the hare. It'll be a little longer, a little slower, but they're going to get there. And they're going to win in the end. Instead, now we can put those issues on the table that we've all known all along were flaws in this deal. It doesn't deal with ballistic missiles. That's a serious issue. It doesn't deal with some of the sites that need to be inspected. Iran wouldn't allow that. And Trump is going to go back and say, and no sunset provisions. You don't get to turn around in 10 years and say, see, we've got a turnkey nuclear program here and we can build whatever we want. And oh, by the way, Iran at that point would be much more integrated into the global financial and economic system. So it would be harder to get allies to come together and say, "Okay, we've got to punish these guys. They've got. They've gotten uh, together and done some things that we really object to. So I think this makes a lot of sense. I think it's the right move. And it's if nothing else. And I don't like to be childish about this. I don't I'm not trying to sit here and tell you about how I drink bathe in, and just thoroughly enjoy liberal tears. But there is something of the erasing the Obama legacy here, at least on foreign policy, that is what's really driving journalists up the wall. These uh, these these bigwigs, these folks over at MS and at CNN and these other places, they're not about to go fight some war with Iran, right? So, uh, the, the high dudgeon you see from them, the... the degree of concern expressed by those who are opposed to this is really much more about the domestic optics. You see, I'm actually in Dallas right now, by the way. I'm not in D.C. I was going to say live from the swamp. Instead, I'm live from America. That's right, the heartland. I, I must have driven past five barbecue joints on my way here from the airport. Five, at least, maybe six. Love this part of the world. I'm down here at uh, actually the offices of of the Blaze, Mercury Radio Arts, visiting Glenn and some friends down here. The fa- My extended Texas family opens its arms to me, which is always much, much appreciated. Uh, so back to the Iran deal. It's not going to change your life. Not going to change my life. You're not going to see much in the way of ramifications for this. Oh, I know people are saying, oh, everyone's on high alert. Uh, well... They're on high alert for a lot of things. This will be a slow and long process, but it sets it on a path that I think could eventually be one that does have real benefits for the region. You know, you want to worry about spooked markets or a spike in oil prices. A war between Israel and Iran because we didn't do the right thing now, that's going to do a whole lot more than just uh, spike oil prices for a couple of days. That's going to be a big problem for the Uh, for the global economy. Who knows where it will go, right? Small wars can become big wars. Wars between two states can become regional. They can become proxy fights. Something happened between Israel and Iran. The Russians would undoubtedly be involved in all kinds of ways. Who knows? Who knows what the Chinese would do? I mean, you know, this is all not even just extrapolation. This is all hypothetical. This is looking in the future and saying, look, we don't know. But an Iranian state with nuclear missiles... That's not good. That's not going to be good for anybody. It wouldn't just be Iran. Keep that in mind, too. If you had a state like Iran that doesn't really care much about world opinion, doesn't really care about the international community. And by the way, I'm also very quick to say 
Those are shorthands that don't really make a... What is world opinion? I love playing that game with people. The whole world disagrees with Trump on... Did you poll them? Polls? Who's polls? You know, the whole world doesn't pay attention to these things. What you mean is the leadership of the most industrialized and economically powerful states in the world tend to share a similar view, and we call that consensus of elites from those countries global opinion. Uh, but Iran doesn't really give a, give a crap about much of that, does it? The Iranians do what they do. We're not even having a discussion right now about Iranian human rights abuses and support for terrorism and all the other really bad, nasty stuff they're up to. We're just focused on, hey, let's not let these crazies get nukes. That's, that's step one. And let's make sure that we are on a pathway, you could say a trajectory, that would make it impossible or very, very, very unlikely and hard for them to get nuclear missiles. And that's not what Obama did. That's not what the Obama deal did. And I think that Trump has taken a big step in the right direction today. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it noteworthy that this president who came into office with critics just sneering at him for his lack of foreign policy savvy is now tackling two of the biggest geopolitical issues that that exist right north korea and iran and already with north korea we've seen him get further than i think any of his detractors would have admitted now they'll say oh anybody could get to this point anybody could get them to yeah sure six months ago it was he was going to push us into a nuclear war with north korea now it's anybody could do this these are like the people that watch you know watch the nfl on sunday they're like i could have caught that in the end zone no actually you couldn't you couldn't have but it's fun to think that. I agree. Sometimes I'm like, I would have made that pass. No, Buck, you would not have. Uh, so anyway, this is this is an important thing to keep in mind. They're moving the goalposts uh, goal all the time because they do not, they fundamentally do not want a world in which Trump has to get credit for, despite not speaking multiple languages, not being the most fancy, frou-frou, bougie internationalist on the on the face of the earth, Although he is a billionaire, right? So this this all does get kind of tangled up. But because he doesn't take that Council on Foreign Relations internationalist approach to things, they they mock, they deride, they think that he is beneath their contempt on these issues. I don't know how they get up in the morning. I don't know what they think of themselves in those foreign policy circles, in those elite media and Democrat Party circles. When they wake up, it's like, wow, is Trump... Is Trump solving some of the most vexing problems that the world faces on a goal, from a security standpoint, at least? Is he, is that really happening? What do they say then? You know, what's the pitch going to be from Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders? You know, we're, we're pro North Korean militarism. I mean, you know, they're already, I told you this, I was making jokes about it before. Now it's happening with North Korea. They're saying, that it's Kim Jong-un who has caused the thaw. Oh, okay. That's cute. You're going to see the same thing with the Iranian regime. What's Iran really going to do? Not negotiate? Yeah, sure, they're going to say right now, great Satan, little Satan, blah, blah, death to America. Sure, I get it. they got to say all that stuff. Big, big consequences for America. Uh, this is what the Obama administration forgot. America is the biggest, strongest, most important, most powerful country the world has ever known. We are trying to find a way to get the Iranians 
to stop doing what they are doing short of invasion and war. We should be able to find a way to do that. We don't take orders from them. We don't even take suggestions from them. We should say this is how it's going to be. So I'm assuming that Trump will actually get further in that negotiation, the negotiation with Iran as well. And then you're really going to have critics scratching their heads and freaking out because the smart set, the so-called intelligentsia on these issues, North Korea and Iran most notably, but there'll be others too, said that he was doomed, that this was a failure, there was no chance. Well, actually, I'm not saying it's worked yet. The Iran deal, this, there could be debacles aplenty, no matter what Trump does going forward with this. But for right now, you got to stop and think, hmm, maybe this disruptive and unconventional president is getting results. And isn't that actually what we all wanted anyway? Now, if I could just get him to turn his attention a little more to immigration and the border... That would make me happy. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of a whole bunch of other things too, if I recall. Something about a wall. There's there's some things on the list, folks, that we will not forget. But we're pulling out of the Iran deal. That's a, a promise made, a promise kept. Now we'll see if the great negotiator can come away from this with something that up to this point people would have thought was almost impossible. Oh yeah? They also said that he had a 97% chance of losing the election. Remember that? New York Times, 95%. So don't uh, don't bet against him on this one. We'll, we'll trust but verify with the whole Iran negotiation as it goes on. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I'm in Dallas. Come on, my Texas team, Buck. Just give me a call and say hi because I'm in your neck of the woods if you're in Texas right now. Um, I really should go up and hang out in Austin. It's a conversation. I mean, Dallas is great, too, but. I really, I, I never get up to Austin, and I keep saying I will. But, it, Jeff, it's like a, a drive that's, it's a long drive. Four hours? I don't think I have time for it this time around. All right, quick, uh, quick break. We'll be back with much more. Stay with me. In 2015, the previous administration joined with other nations in a deal regarding Iran's nuclear program. This agreement was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. In theory, the so-called Iran deal was supposed to protect the United States and our allies from the lunacy of an Iranian nuclear bomb, a weapon that will only endanger the survival of the Iranian regime. In fact, the deal allowed Iran to continue enriching uranium and, over time, reach the brink of a nuclear breakout. You know who's really not happy about this? Other than the mullahs and the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN. I go to the whole list. But you know who's really unhappy about this? John Kerry. Very, very bummed out. Um, I, I've told you all what I think about Kerry's freelance diplomacy uh, i got some people asked me today they said what do you mean shadow shadow government like, this is a thing when people in certain states they will do this in insurgencies they will create a a fully functioning separate now functioning doesn't mean in power but a fully functional separate government within the, it's not an exile but it's like a government in exile within the state if you know what i mean it's a government that exists in parallel it's like a parastate uh, and having somebody who was just a secretary of state meeting with 
an enemy regime, an enemy regime's chief diplomat to discuss a deal that's under consideration is doing that. Kerry was engaged in shadow governance. It's not okay. Unacceptable on every level, as I've said. But Kerry is uh, upset about this, obviously. Play 19. What this decision by President Trump has done is open up an opportunity for both China and Russia to play a role now in the region that is supersized compared to where they were already with a grown presence. And I, I, I hear, I think the Russians are on their way even now. Some representatives are heading to Iran to have conversations about the way forward. So this will not be well received. Not, it's not a question of Iran. That's not the only place there's a problem. Our allies have signed on to an agreement which the United States has now unilaterally broken. We are in breach of the agreement. Now, see, this is an interesting point of view that he takes, isn't it? Because they were supposed to come clean, meaning Iran was supposed to come clean about their program as part of the agreement. They did not do that. And do you know what they were saying a week ago? Remember Netanyahu, he understands the timing here. He knew that the recertification was just days away. That's why he gave that presentation. But they are in breach. You know, if this is a contract, they were in breach the moment that they lied about the depth and extent of their prior program and the fact that they kept it. So don't play this international law game with all of us, Kerry. Don't pretend that the Iranians were living up to the spirit of the agreement. And oh, by the way, why shouldn't we expect a little bit more from the mullahs given the sweetheart deal the Obama administration cut them? Why can't we expect the Iranians to act in a less belligerent fashion in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in you name a country in the Middle East right now where the Iranians have a hand in chaos, disorder, and bloodshed? That should all be a part of this discussion, too. You know, we have the power here. We want to turn on the spigot, turn off the spigot. The Iranians, does the Iranian state want access to funds and international markets, or does it want to still be crazy, death to America, Israel is the little Satan, all that other crap. Should all be on the table. So, and by the way, does anyone, what is impressive about John Kerry? Why should I listen to anything that John Kerry has said? Oh, because he was Secretary of State? So was Hillary Clinton. These people are not impressive at all, so don't be fooled. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. You know what I think we need? We need a montage of liberal freakout today. Play 20. The United States of America under one administration can sign deals, but it will not be trusted Mm. by subsequent presidents. This is a dangerous, dangerous act. This is an action that puts at risk our national security. You worried that uh, President Trump is leading the United States towards isolationism and thus leaving a vacuum for China, Russia, and others to fill. You bet. I'll bet you that Kim Jong-un is watching this and saying, whoa, what kind of person am I dealing with here? He will have empowered, emboldened the most radical uh, elements inside of Iran who never liked the deal in the first place. You know, it's fascinating to see how many people quickly forget, I would say very conveniently forget, just how odious the Iranian regime really is, how dangerous it is, 
how destabilizing it is. They seem to, I, I don't know, they, they present this idea, whether they believe it or not, that things have gotten better with Iran somehow, that the Iranian state was abiding by this deal. We have better relations with them. It's just not true. In fact, Iran is on the rise now. It's ascendant as a power in the region in many ways because of the deal that was signed. Because it means that it doesn't have to worry about the international community coming down on it hard. doesn't have to worry about strikes on its reactors or strikes on its facilities or any of that. Right? None of that, ha- none of that happens. So they get a reprieve. They get a whole lot more cash. I mean, what else do you really need to know other than the Obama administration delivered pallets of cash to Iran? I mean, this is not something that should be done, right? They're paying off the Iranian state. Bunch of terrorists who take hostages, and we're paying them off and saying, yeah, but maybe we can be friends at some point in the future. It's just sheer and utter nonsense. Uh, but now they're saying, what, Russia and China are going to swoop in. What does what what that even they think that Russia and China are going to do what exactly? Notice that there's no specifics really. Swoop in. The Russians are all over the Middle East already, so keep that in mind. And we got to worry about having enough leverage with Russia to get them to back off some of these areas, which I also think we finally have an administration that I know the Russia thing is very sensitive, but do we really care that much about some of these things that are happening? People like to talk about it. They go on TV, oh, Russia's being really aggressive in this part of the world. Well, we can say, no, that's, that's bad. Don't do that. But beyond that, are, how much am I really supposed to care? How much are you supposed to care? I think the media plays a lot of games with this. It's really easy to talk tough on international policy and foreign relations when you have no skin in the game and no one's going to remember what you said to prove you're wrong anyway. I think is pretty much the defining characteristic of how Democrats approach these issues, certainly how the media does it. Um, withdrawing from the nuclear deal for them is much more of a political issue at home than it is, oh, it's going to make us so unsafe abroad. That's just not true. It will not happen that way. Uh, Netanyahu's psyched. A little, little bit of, a little bit of a high five from the prime minister of Israel. No surprise. Play 18, please. That President Trump did an historic move. And this is why Israel thanks President Trump for his courageous leadership, his commitment to confront the terrorist regime in Tehran, and his commitment to ensure that Iran never gets nuclear weapons. Not today, not in a decade, not ever. Now, here's where a little bit of cynical buck comes into play. Our record of stopping countries from going nuclear once they get to a certain place is... Not so great. India, Pakistan, North Korea, TBD, but countries that get close. And people say, oh, Buck, what about South Africa? I, I, I understand, but generally speaking, very tough to prevent a country that, that has a certain level of resources, population, and political will from going nuclear if it really wants to. So even if we do everything right, and working with allies in the region, the, the P5 plus one, right? Uh, the, the, uh, the countries that were part of this joint plan, the JCP, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA. Uh, it may not work out. Now, then we'd have to figure out 
Does a nuclear Iran actually mean we have to go to war? I certainly hope not. I certainly would never want that to be the case. And uh, I would never advocate for it. Now, here we're seeing the use of economic policy tools to try and bend a belligerent power to our side of things a bit more. Will it work? I can't tell you, but I think it's the right move right now. And if nothing else, it at least really agitates liberals, which is great in and of itself. It just is. I I know that's the thing. Oh, you're not supposed to say that. Yeah, well, I'm saying it. Makes them really angry. Because now, what, what was what was Obama doing all those years when he was having Kerry and, and others negotiate this thing? Yeah, it's kind of a waste of time. There is a recurrent theme here, though. It's true on DACA. It's true on this deal that, you know, I thought, wasn't it Obama who actually said elections have consequences? I'm pretty sure it was Obama, right? Yeah, thank you. It was Obama. And he is correct in that. And you know what one of the consequences of Trump winning this last election was? He can say, I didn't like what Obama did. I'm going to not do that thing anymore. Now, federal courts may try to take it upon themselves to stop him. They're wrong to do so. But nonetheless, it's at least in the president's power to try to undo the damage and the bad decision making of the previous regime. Right. I I think there's clarity on that. I would think so. Uh, But here we are now. Um, We have all kinds of folks who. Don't spend much time thinking about knowing about or reading about foreign policy. We're like, oh, my gosh. They fall into the political tribalism of Obama, good, Trump, bad. Therefore, this must be bad. They really have no idea what the long-term implications are. And keep in mind, we could have another Iran deal in relatively short order. I'm not saying it will happen. We could. We could have one that Trump finds acceptable. There is such a thing. It would be there. From one of the the earliest, uh, one of my earliest senses of, of where the Iran deal went wrong was what was difficult for them to give up in this whole process? What was the thing that you're sitting around and you're like, you know what? Man, I can't believe they got the Iranians to agree to that thing. It's nothing. Stop spinning the centrifuges. Mothball some stuff. Keep vast trove of information and get it all kick-started uh, once they want to go again. And they get a pallets of cash delivered, loosening of sanctions, open up their markets, a whole lot more cash for the regime. It's kind of remarkable when you think about it. How did the Obama administration have such a hard time getting that deal? It's a great deal for Iran. You know, Israelis no longer, no one's, no one's reporting on how the Israelis might, you know, might strike. Might be an airstrike of some kind. You know, I remember we used to see those reports all the time. Well, not all the time. You see them some frequency, though. That all goes away. Uh, that all goes away. So it was a good deal for the Iranians. I, I also try to take the point of view, and I'm somebody who made a, in a sense, made a living in foreign policy or in, in the world of international intrigue and espionage. You know what we used to say at the CIA, Jeffy? Every mission begins with a coffee machine. It's true. It's very important. Everybody knows that. Very good at making lattes. It's like Bin Laden couldn't hang with this latte, son. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK uh, if you would like to chat. I have some uh, some follow-up from yesterday's uh, bombshell report from uh, Schneider, uh, on Schneiderman from uh, Ronan Farrow. I, I read the New Yorker piece. Wow, it was, it was worse than I thought. I knew it was bad when you saw some of the initial coverage. It's actually a really interesting case study 
when these allegations come out, what you can see right away in terms of how bad this is going to be based on the reports on the report, right? What what are they pulling out from it and what are we hearing right away? Um, and how quickly does the guy resign? And Schneiderman was like, that was, that was a lightning speed resignation. That was real fast. Uh, as it should have been. There's no way, no way that guy's going to be able to, uh, you know. And, and also, four women, I mean, innocent until proven guilty, this guy's guilty. Come on. I, that's the other part of this, too, right? When it was initially I read it, I'm like, well, is it, is it one woman? Is this an, you know, an ex-girlfriend or something that wants to? Oh, no, when it's four, they're on the record. They've got details. There's corroboration. There's multiple sources. But there's some very interesting fallout from that in the political realm as well, because a lot of people, and this is what you've got to remember, just like with Weinstein, a lot of people who are important and powerful in media and in Democrat Party circles were not just tied to this. They were banking on this guy. He was a hero to them. He was a leader of the anti-Trump resistance and yet, oh, what do we find out about him? It was all just a charade. He's a dirtbag. He's scum. And here we are. Uh, so I, I want to dig into that a bit more, uh, probably in, in the next hour. So much more, uh, much more coming up here, team. Stay with me. <laughs> you, you have got to be kidding me. I just see this now. I just saw this as we're on air. Ex-CIA officer compares John Kerry to Taliban for efforts to save Iran deal. So I was on Fox this morning, and they're referring to me. They could also use my name, but they want to, they want to go with the ex-CIA officer thing. Okay. I said that we expect a shadow government from the Taliban. We do not expect it. From John, from our former Secretary of State. It's a very specific comparison. I didn't compare John Kerry just to the Taliban in general. I'm not saying he's like, he's an he's a Islamic fundamentalist who wants to lop people's heads off and put women in burqas. I mean, this is just, this is just reckless. <laughs> this is not even, this is not even serious. It was in the, a very specific context. I mean, it's almost funny. We could probably play the, do we have that part of it? I know we have some of the, uh, some of the audio. No, we have the beginning part of it. All right, yeah. That's all right. Maybe we'll get the other part of it later. Compares John Kerry to Taliban. That is really funny. Um, uh, This is really... Here's what I said. Uh, Shadow diplomacy is something we expect from the Taliban to have a shadow government in place, not from our own Secretary of State. I mean, this is really beyond the pale. And you have to know, in meetings like this, this is not casual. This is not someone who's just talking with his former counterparts. He's negotiating from the other side of the table. What what part of that is what part of that is weird? I, I'm surprised they even try to make this into a story. I guess they just figure uh, they'll, they'll make a headline here, and sure, uh, just just go with go with the sloppy comparison because why not? That's pretty funny though. Compares John Kerry to the Taliban. Well, the notion of a shadow government. You know, th- this would be like saying. Um, uh, here's a perfect a perfect parallel, if you will. So, if I say that um, if I say that Mueller is operating like a deep state, 
Am I actually saying that Mueller is part of a military hierarchy within the United States government that has engaged in numerous coups in the 20th and into the 21st century? Because that's actually where the, the original deep state concept comes from, from a Turkish permanent military caste that overthrows democratic elections by force. So if I say Mueller is being deep state, am I saying that Mueller is actually running some secret military operation to literally overthrow the government? Oh, no, you mean the context of how you say it and what you're talking about actually matters? What a shock. Uh, I'm not back. I think it's, a, it's actually an apt analogy what, about the shadow government. For those who don't know, this is what the Taliban does. They set up a governor. They'll set up even below that, all the way down to the local and village level. They will have administrators in place. The idea being that the moment they take over an area, they have a government ready to go. Right. So what is John Kerry doing meeting with the Iranian foreign minister to undermine the Trump administration's foreign policy? That's, a shat- that's being a shadow secretary of state. I'm not saying it's only done by the Taliban, but... Anyway, I thought this was funny. XEF, so compares John Kerry to Taliban. Mediaite, your, your, your clownishness is, uh, is astonishing, but I guess unsurprising. Uh, yes, please, have someone, have someone on the Mediaite staff explain Afghanistan to me. That would be a fun conversation. So let, let's sit around Mediaite. How many, how many of you could even name three provinces off the top of your head in Afghanistan, Mediaite? I'm guessing very few. They might have one. There might be someone on the staff who could do it. You know, maybe maybe they've got someone over there as former mill, and I'm not thinking about that person. But overall, a lot of nothing, a lot of nothing, a lot of clipping people going blah blah blah, yelling at each other on on uh, different stuff. So there you have it. Oh gosh, this is pretty funny stuff. Sorry, I was going to talk to you about immigration and Jeff Sessions. You know what? Let's get it. Let's get into a little bit of that now, actually, because there's not really much more to be said here. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff Sessions is uh, strapping in, getting serious over immigration. That's what I like to see. Play clip two, please. So today we're here to send a message to the world that we are not going to let the country be overwhelmed. People are not going to caravan or otherwise stampede our border. We need legality and integrity in our immigration system. That's why the Department of Homeland Security is now referring 100 percent of illegal southwest border crossings to the Department of Justice for prosecution. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. You know, on the one hand, it's nice to hear this. But on the other hand, dude, that it's a novel concept that we're going to enforce the law, that if you cross the border illegally, there will be legal consequences for that act, that this is almost a revolutionary act for Jeff Sessions, tells you a lot about where we are in the immigration debate right now, doesn't it? And that the Trump administration is probably more hated for, and I mean this quite quite literally, stating its willingness to enforce immigration laws. The things that are on the books that Congress is responsible for passing and then maintaining, they could repeal it, they don't, that that makes this administration so anathema, so unacceptable to Democrats, tells you a lot. What a crazy time, what a crazy world we live in. 
This is where Buck gives you some of his wisdom, like, my friends, the world is a dangerous place. It's true, it is. I've been told. I know people. The world's a dangerous place. Crazy things happen. Uh, coming up, I, I want to talk to you about, uh, well, third hour, we're going to get into this case at Harvard. I don't know if you know about this. A Harvard student who was naked on LSD, wrestled to the ground because he was in the middle of an intersection, and the cops are to blame for this. Oh, how does that work? Well, I will explain, but you have to stay with me. I want to tell you about Nine Line Apparel. It's a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand. I know these guys. I'm friends with the CEO. All of his top people are veterans that you all would love to call friends and neighbors, and they're really concerned with making sure that they give back to their community. That's why Nine Line is proud to announce a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to the children of our nation's fallen. If you go to NineLineApparel.com, you can get a Remember the Fallen Memorial Day shirt, and with each shirt purchased, you have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier, and these heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. So please support our fallen heroes. Go to NineLineApparel.com and get this exclusive Memorial Day shirt and all of Nine Lines patriotic apparel today. And disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm down here in uh, Dallas, Texas, visiting my old Blaze family. Just got a chance to hang out with with Glenn. Maybe I'll even pop up on his show tomorrow. Who knows? Could happen. Uh, but always great to see the folks here. And, you know, this is uh, where I got my start in the business. And uh, many war. I'll, I'll get a little nostalgic uh, later on the show about my time at the Blaze. But it's, it's fun to come back here. It's like visiting... You know, it's like visiting your college right after you graduate or something. You know, it's, it's been great. Um, the Schneiderman case, or what could turn into a criminal case, we'll see. Eric Schneiderman, he, he resigned, as you know, last night. And it was a breaking news event. I, I didn't, no one had any who wasn't involved with the actual story. And look, I, I give credit where it's due. It's one of, my, one of my things here on the show. A lot of people is, you know, anything that... The other side does, so to speak, is bad, right? Anything Obama says was wrong. Anything that Pelosi says is dumb. You know, no. You know, you don't even need me to repeat the thing about broken clocks being right and all that. But when someone does something good, I say it's good. Uh, Ronan Farrow has the distinction of, I think, having the single worst daytime or anytime cable news show that has ever been put on. I think it might actually be the worst cable news show of certainly of the modern era on MSNBC, CNN. I mean, it was like they picked a kid out of his sophomore year of high school and were like, can you read a prompter? Sweet. Here's a TV show. It was it was really bad. It was bad for him. And he's open about it. And I bring it up not to just, you know, go joyriding in the wreckage of that show or something, but because. Right now, uh, this is a guy who's actually doing real journalism. So, I you know, I give him a high five. I give him props. He's actually he's bringing together stories with real sourcing that are true, that are bringing down powerful people, that powerful other powerful people don't want told. 
He's doing what everyone at MS and CNN and others pretend that they're doing on a regular basis. And I know some of them would like to do it, but they're not doing it a lot, and a lot of them don't want to do it at all. So while I'm sure Mr. Farrow and I would agree on very little, he's uh, between this and the Weinstein story, i got to give him some credit. All right. Now, what, what, what does this mean, though, for the left? What is there to be said about this? Um, Eric Schneiderman, I just, I just noted this last night. This doesn't matter, but uh, he went to my college. Just figured this out. Eric Schneiderman is an, an, an alumnus of my college. Yeah, I know. Jeffy's, I'm down here hanging out with Jeffy in Dallas. I got producer Mike and, and Brandon up in New York. I know. I'm, I'm just saying this is like a, a factoid about him that just came up because now two of like the worst people are very well-known graduates of my very small school in the Northeast. You have uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, the uh, Scooter Libby slash Conrad Black slash I think he also took down Blagojevich, which, you know, I mean, I mean, Blago was dirty, but I kind of like Blago. But you have Patrick Fitzgerald, who I'm, I have a a a deep distaste for don't know him but professionally uh i I really object to what he has done i think he's uh really polluted the prosecutor's office in many ways uh and now schneiderman who is like a monster i was able to read some last night on air of that piece in the uh in the new yorker new york magazine new yorker right yeah i was able to read some of it as we were going through in the break but i went through all of it last night and wow this guy is Uh, He's a a real sicko. He's a bad guy. There's something particular about uh, anyone who would be violent with women. There's something particularly odious. It's really a a special, well, it's like somebody who would hurt children. It's like a special category of terrible. Uh, And and Schneiderman clearly is is in that. I mean, he's going to say he didn't do it, but he resigned really quickly. I'll tell you this. If if somebody accuses you of the kind of things he's accused of and you didn't do it, I don't think you – no, I think you say are, you go down fighting. You make them drag you from that office. And I don't care what it does to your career. I don't care what it does. You don't pull this, oh, for the people of the state of New York. No way. All right? If someone said, you know, hey, Buck, we think you murdered this person, so can you quit your job now because, you know, we can't have a murderer doing it, I wouldn't say – well, I'm not guilty of this murder, but I'm going to quit my job immediately. I'd say, hell no. Let's go. I'm innocent. So I think we all see where this is with the Schneiderman guy. The other dynamic, though, that's at work here that I think is really interesting is what were they, what were they treating? Uh, how are they, the media, the Democrat Party, what were they acting uh, like when it came to Schneiderman before all this? Did anyone have any inclination? Trump's tweet was prophetic. I, I retweeted it last night when he said that Schneiderman was worse than worse than Weiner and, uh, which is already quite a high bar, and Elliot Spitzer. And when you note some of these New York, some of these very senior New York politicians, wow, New York is rough. We're, we're trying to make gains on Chicago here, I think, for just the, the dirtiest, most corrupt, most nasty just immoral, grotesque cesspool in terms of our politics. New York still has like great food and many, many other good things. But in terms of our, our politicians, we put out we put out the worst in New York. You know, um, but back to Schneiderman for a moment here. They, he was uh, a hero of the left. I, I, a hero of the left. I remember he was involved in 
trying to use uh, climate change as a shakedown maneuver. He was one, right? Yep. He was one of these attorneys general for a state who was just using the whole climate change thing as a means of shaking down corporations and, and like a social justice warrior in a $3,000 suit was kind of the approach he was going for, you know. So he was part of that. But he was really being lauded at the time for being so profound and so important in the Me Too movement. Here's a guy who we now find out is abusive, is racist, is sicko, is a weirdo toward women. I mean, in general, but also specifically toward women. But before that, you had prominent voices, female voices in media, who weren't only saying, yeah, Schneiderman's a good attorney general. They were saying he is a a hero to the women's movement in this country. Please play 15. Today is November 8th, which means Donald Trump was elected president exactly 100 years ago. I'm kidding. It's only been a year. Oh, my. Where'd this come from? (laughs) (laughs) President Bonespur has had more endurance than predicted, especially if you were predicting his endurance by looking at literally any photo of him being physical ever. But there is hope on the horizon. A hero who stood up to democracy's nemesis before. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's... I'm Eric Schneiderman, and I'm the Attorney General of the State of New York, the lawyer for the State of New York and for the people of the State of New York. Happy one-year anniversary. Well, thank you. You must be so happy that Trump won because he's giving you so much material. What a great time to be an attorney. Yeah, it's like a toxic volcano that just keeps belching out bad public policies. But we have a very strong legal resistance. Are you going to lead us out of the darkness? The state attorneys general are going to be the first line of defense because the Constitution kept a lot of power at the state level uh, to hold a potential tyrant in check. We have that power now, and with great power comes great responsibility. The guy is quoting Spider-Man, folks. And this puff piece with Samantha B. This, I mean, this stuff, you can't make this up. He's literally up there, and Samantha Bee's like, oh, he's going to save us. I don't think so. I think it's quite clear that's not the case anymore. But the, one of the worst details in terms of reaction to the terrible things that Schneiderman was doing, and this really stuck out for me, was that some of the, according to at least one of the, I think there were four women who were, who were claiming all this heinous abuse. One of them said, though, that when she told her friends about it, they said, more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said, don't make a big thing of this. He's really important to the Democratic Party. Now, first of all, I mean, Anyone who would ever say that to you if you've been physically and, and sexually abused by, by anyone, right, is, is the furthest thing from a friend. I mean, it's really anyone who would take that position is is enabling uh, a kind of violence and, and uh, oppression that it's, it's mind-blowing, right, that anyone would take that position. Uh, but this is a recurring theme with Democrats. I've been on this show talking to you about Chappaquiddick. I think actually they were even a sponsor of this show, the Chappaquiddick movie. Why did they do all that stuff for Teddy Kennedy? 
Why do they cover up that he? And we're, by the way, now now we're in the criminal realm. I don't want to hear oh, Buck, but you know, there's this Republican politician. You know, look what Trump says sometimes. Whatever. No, no, no. I'm talking about actual cre- credible criminal cases where people were hurt or people were murdered. That kind of stuff. Not like somebody made a, a, a gross off-color comment 10 years ago, and now we're going to pretend like, ooh, you know. Teddy Kennedy let a woman drown in the back of his car. He was responsible for driving that car. He was almost certainly driving drunk in the car. And she asphyxiated, most likely, because she was in the back in three feet of water, and he did nothing. And she couldn't get out. Why would the Democrats cover for him? Because he was important to the Democratic Party. Why would women, including female journalists and prominent elected officials in this country, go along with the Teddy Kennedy ruse as long as they did? Because he was important to the Democratic Party. Uh, Why did someone like Anthony Weiner think he had another shot after the first go-round of... You know, when you're talking about Weiner, you're not even necessarily trying to make jokes, but you end up saying things like, you know, Weiner texting... Um, which is a true thing that he did, but you know, I'm, but why do you think he had a second round here? Well, because he was important to the Democratic Party, or at least he thought he was, and people were willing to give him a shot. Once the second time came around, it was too much. And never, I mean, Bill Clinton, and I'm skipping over that too. Why does he? Why was he able to get away with assaulting women? You know the answer. This is a recurring theme, and it it cannot be just skipped over. That the same party that claims to be the champions of and for women is the one that has had the most grotesque abusers of women in in its ranks at the senior levels. I mean, there is nothing that compares to something like what uh, Teddy Kennedy did or Bill Clinton. I mean, accused on the record of rape. Credibly and in name, I would add. Uh, So... That's another part of this. And and the media won't want to touch it. They won't want to talk about it. But there were a lot of people who I, I'm i willing to bet there were a lot of people that knew that, that the Schneiderman guy was, was a weirdo and that there were problems here. But they didn't want to say anything about it because he was going after the right targets. He was useful. He was a weapon against the Republicans. Most, more specifically, he was a weapon against Trump. And that creates a kind of invulnerability. Right, every everything else falls by the wayside. No matter what they do to the justice system, no matter what they do to the office of uh, prosecutors, or to excuse all kinds of malfeasance in the media, if it gets at Trump, if it has a shot at hurting the administration, it's not just excusable; it's laudable. It's good. It's praiseworthy. And with Schneiderman, I, I don't believe that all this stuff was just completely off the radar. No one no one had any idea. Oh, they had no nonsense. I'm sure if we dig deeper, we'll find out. Just like with Harvey Weinstein, he was part of the power structure. He was a, a big-time uh, official and was connected to all the right people. And people like that on the Democrat side can get away with a lot for a very long time, despite the fact that they are pretending they're holding themselves out as being the vanguard of the of the Me Too movement, as this guy was. It's crazy, as crazy as it is. Um, I want to tell you about our sponsor this half hour, folks. So we're going to switch gears here for a second. Uh, and that is Dig Defense. Look, when you are at work, 
Your dogs are cooped up inside all day. So when you get home, of course, you let them burn off some energy by running around the yard. Except lately, the running has led to digging under your fence. You've tried brick and wood, even concrete, right? But have you tried Dig Defense? It's genius. And it solves a major problem that a lot of pen owners have to deal with. Digging. Dig Defense extends the protection of your fence underground. So no amount of digging is going to let your pets out of the yard or let predators in. Predators like foxes, skunks, and raccoons will attack your dogs and cats. Dig Defense keeps your furry family members safe. It comes in a bunch of different models and sizes to fit your needs. Easy to install with a hammer and a pair of gloves. If you have pets digging under the fence, check out Dig Defense right now. It's available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. It's the solution to pets digging under the fence and getting out or letting predators in. So go check them out. Again, Dig Defense at StopTheDig.com. We actually have uh, Ronan Farrow, the author of the piece that took down Schneiderman in in record time, speaking specifically about how uh, some of the accusers, the people accusing Schneiderman of the misconduct, of the assaults, uh, were warned. And what they're warned about, play eight. The point I want to make is that in those conversations after the fact, a lot of their friends and loved ones said, don't do it. Don't speak out against him. And in some cases, that was because they feared the risk of reprisals. You know, they described uh, him threatening people, uh, using his office and his power to say, you know, he could wiretap people or he could come after people. But also in some cases, Allison, those friends warned them off of talking because they thought that he had the power to do too much good for the Democratic Party. The power to do too much good for the Democratic Party. Now, you could say, and I'm not saying you would, but one could say, oh, that's, this is an anomaly, right? They, they, no, nobody would – okay, maybe this one person or I – I would counter that actually and say, no, 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 this isn't something that just – it isn't that in this case with this one attorney general for the state of New York, one of the accusers happened to have a friend who would take that position. It is – a much more mainstream point of view among Democrats that you cannot do anything. It doesn't matter if it means you have to suppress the truth. It doesn't matter if you have to excuse truly immoral and evil behavior. You cannot get in the way of the cause. They really take a Soviet view of these things. You know, you're either with the revolution or you are to be pushed aside and and or eliminated right you're either with us or you are to be destroyed and that's it and there's no halfway with us this is all that matters right the soviet union the revolution the communist party that was all that mattered anything else was secondary democrats a lot of them take that point of view progressives feel that way about these these social justice battles they find themselves in in this case it's really just trump they feel that way about anything to stop trump and bring trump down uh, that is the that is the goal. I mean, that's why when we talk about Trump derangement or Trump uh, Trump delusion, derangement's more fun to say. Syndrome. I do believe it's a it's a thing that's happening. I think that there are people who have lost a connection to reality. They have had some kind of a disconnect here because Trump has just so upset 
their view of themselves and their view of, of this country and where it was heading and where it was going and the, the glories of the Obama years and all that. That it, it's like an illness that they have. And they act like addicts. You know, if you ever get in the way, I've unfortunately experienced this once or twice in my life. If you ever get between an addict and whatever the thing he or she is addicted to, it's a very scary place to be. And when you, it doesn't matter who the person is or, you know, how big they are. Oh, no, you do not want to be the one saying, you know, sorry, not this bottle, not this, not this pill for you. Uh, Get in the way of an anti-Trumper, a hashtag resistance person when it comes to their agenda of taking down Trump. That also can be kind of a scary place because it's like they have an anti-Trump addiction. They, they need to scratch this itch. They need a way to, to feed this mania that they have. And that's the only way I can come up with any explanation for how any human being could tell somebody else after what this guy Schneiderman did, well, you know, he's an important Democrat, so, like, don't make a big deal of it. He said, by the way, family members said that. Now it's time to get, you know, time to find the new family. Um, oh, we've got Selena Zito joining us, by the way, on her book that's just out, so stay with me for that. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Team, it's a little early to go too deep into what we can expect in the midterms, but certainly a very interesting time in our national political conversation. And we have uh, political currents that are, are shifting the way that we view the parties, that we view the future of the country. And we've got somebody with us right now who is going to speak to that. It's Selena Zito. She is a national political reporter and author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Her new book, which I am told is fantastic because she does a phenomenal job with her reporting. (laughs) Selena Zito, great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you on book launch day. Uh, So tell me, your book just launched. Here we are. It's out there. What are you telling the folks about in this Zito opus? (laughs) Well, I think some of the important things to understand is this is a movement that that Donald Trump did not cause. He just was the result of. And it is a movement that has only gotten stronger in in a coalition that is incredibly interesting in the the archetypes of voters that, that make up who sort of joined on because they were upset with not just both political parties, but the way that uh, society and culture have been treating them. So it wasn't just in politics, it wasn't just in government, but it also had to do with the way big business was treating them, the way Hollywood was treating them. And they decided to be very pragmatic with their vote. You know, people think that it was anger. They were more driven by pragmatism and um, uh, this aspirational goal of being part of something bigger than themselves. And and the thing that, you know, is incredible to me is that we're in the middle of this movement and, and it's disrupting a lot of things, but we're still not hearing and listening to what it tells us and how it's not only going to impact uh, elections going forward, but also how it's going to in, impact, um, you know, how we buy things, how we view television. You know, um, you know, great big sort 
sort of institutions that we have trusted forever, like the NFL or, you know, some power brands like Dick's Sporting Goods or Hertz Rent-A-Car or Delta are all suffering because they made decisions that go against these people's values and their and their belief system. So is, is a large part, and this is based on your reporting across, what, five, five swing states, over 27... 27- 27,000 miles of travel to look at what's yeah. going on here. And, yeah. and, but is it your sense then from talking to folks in the states that were the, the heart of Trump country that a big part of this is just they're sick of the, uh, the political correctness, the progressive overreach, the identity politics? So in a sense, this is like trying to push the pendulum back to the other side? Yeah, and it's, there's also other very meaningful um, um, things that have uh, upended these voters. A lot of them are upset with how culture views them. So think about all the decision makers in the world, not just in politics, but in what we watch on television or how we watch sports or how we buy things. They all live in these sort of super zip codes. And they're surrounded by people who also live in the super zip codes, and they're really well-educated, and they're surrounded by other people that are really well-educated, and they, and, and they don't share the same pace of life, the same values, and the, and the same um, ideals as, as people who live outside of these super zip codes, where there's, you know, typically counties have a variety of different, you know, economic conditions as opposed to just, you know, one perfect economic condition. And and so the, the decision makers are, have made this choice that they're going to to side with a more progressive world and to short, sort of just shut the rest of them out or mock them or make fun of them or, you know, you, you, you can pick a variety of different um, ways that they have mis- disrespected them. But ultimately, these people have decided that they've had enough, and you just didn't see it in the um, 2016 election. You also saw it in how they responded to the Roseanne show. So think about how people showed up to watch that show in record numbers, numbers that television has seen for years. And who drove those numbers? Well, the top 20 were uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Cincinnati, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and places like that. New York and L.A., which typically are the numbers drivers in the media markets, were below 20. So their force is felt, you know, not just in politics. It's felt there. Look at what happened to Dick Sporting Goods when they decided to be a gun control um, lobby as opposed to a sporting goods business. Or the NFL, who decided to become a social justice business as opposed to an entertainment and sports entity. They are all suffering record losses because of their decisions, and those decisions were made in the super zip codes. We're speaking to Selena Zito, author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics, out today in fine bookstores and on Amazon. I want to ask you, Selena, if you could tell me from your your travels and looking at uh, at this particular issue of of our uh, our our Trumpist political moment here, or uh, the the Trump movement, the Trump agenda. What was the th- if you could tell me the thing that stuck out the most in your mind of what people who were 
voting for Trump, who believed in Trump, what they really wanted him to accomplish. Did, did you get a sense of that? I mean, if you know, it's one thing to say why they're willing to try it, why they felt they wanted to go vote for him. But what do they really want him to do more than anything else? Two things struck me. Uh, one was these, that these voters are not angry, but they're much more aspirational. They want to be joined together and they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. The second thing, in, in, and most importantly, that, again, as I said before, they're very pragmatic for their vote. So maybe they didn't share his values. Maybe they didn't like what he said. But they do believe that he was going to get in there and stand up for the things that they believe in. Take evangelical voters in particular. In the Great Revolt, we, they, are, they are one of the seven archetypes, and I call them King Cyrus Christians. Where, where evangelical voters and, and Catholic voters made the decision that after years and years of supporting these um, um, candidates, uh, including Barack Obama, Barack Obama won evangelical voters, um, uh, that and George W. Bush, that none of these these people uh, would stand up for them. So, so instead of voting their values. They voted um, for the person who was going to have their back and and that, you know, religious freedom and the Second Amendment and the judicial bench was much more important than having a man or a woman in the White House that was a Christian just like them. I have to say one of the parts of of this whole uh, this point in time in our politics that really strikes me, and and I'm assuming that it has a real impact on the psychology of a lot of Trump voters, is the notion that, and this is forwarded by a lot of people in the media, I've read all kinds of editorials, and I mean, you know, Twitter is is a sewer system, but there's, you still got to look at what's what's out there sometimes, where they're suggesting, Selena, that you know why Trump won? Racism. And I I think that when you you look at the, the places that were the defining the defining points in Trump's victory, places like Pennsylvania, places like Michigan, Wisconsin, that went for Obama twice. I mean, districts that flipped to Trump went for Obama twice. And now the media's diagnosis of the problem is racism. I think on that alone, I can say this. If I had been an Obama voter and I then switched and voted for Trump and the media said that people that did that or that, that the Trump wave was all about racism, I could never vote Democrat again. Just based on that, it's such an insult and it's it so is. intellectually lazy. It's incredible. Well, because you can just say that word and stop the conversation because you're too lazy to have a further conversation because you don't want to face the facts that we have a problem in this country and it's just too difficult to handle. So maybe if we just keep throwing that word out, eventually all these people will die and we won't have to deal with it. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, and it's not about race. It, it is, it, and, and I was in every county that voted Obama, Obama, Trump. The majority of the voters that I, that I interviewed voted for President Obama twice. And guess what? They still like him. They just didn't like his policies. Yeah, Obama was, I've, I've always said this on the show, gave a great speech, very charismatic guy, very nice family life. Very, you know, there's, there was a lot about, right. oh, there's a reason the guy had two blowout electoral victories. But I don't pretend that this was, you know, Hillary was a different story. But I don't pretend that Obama wasn't a charismatic politician. But I just think that that's one of the, the mainstream media lies that will not die, that somehow it was 
a uh, it was a backlash to having a black president for eight years because you still hear that. I heard it certainly election night, and it continues on. But uh, but moving off from that for a second, Selena, I, and I know that you've got a lot of interviews to do because you got a lot of books to sell because it's a great book, and everyone should <laughs> check it out. The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Uh, how do you think how do you think Trump voters are feeling at this point going into what will be a very contentious midterm? Well, I mean, he's at about 90 percent approval rating among Republican voters and among independent among independent voters. I'm going to forget what the number is. The people that voted for the, the people that voted for him. It's an it is a November 8th, 2016 every day. And it's at about two in the morning. And they are ecstatic and optimistic. Nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. And conversely, if you didn't vote for him, nothing has changed either. They still don't like him. Yeah. Although I will say I have found a, a pretty sizable anecdotal evidence of people who didn't vote for him who are thinking, you know, um, I kind of like that he takes on the man. And I kind of like how my pocketbook is, is, is the size it's growing to. And I kind of like what he did with Iran because we kind of thought that deal was, you know, was, wasn't good and the tax reform isn't bad. And I like the way the judicial bench is shaping up. It's going to shape up to be something extraordinary for the next generation. I might not, maybe I don't show up and vote for him, but I'm not going to vote against him. Everyone should check out the Great Revolt, Selena. Congrats, uh, congrats on the on the release. Great to have you here. Come back soon. Thank you so much for having me, Team. We've got so much more coming up, including a discussion of a Black Lives Matter movement uh, revival of sorts going on at Harvard University, of all places. And then we will also have some time to reminisce about Buck being down here in Dallas, seeing some of his Blaze family. Getting to hang out with the one and only Jeffy right now, for example. I know. He's taking a little bow in there. He knows. He knows. Jeffy, make sure that when I come down to Dallas and visit the old mothership, that everything, you know, that I, I, I get all my medicine, all the lights are on, everything works, you know, I get to bed at a reasonable hour. You know, he takes care of me. So thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back in just a few. Stay. Steve, calling in from Springfield, Massachusetts. You're up, sir. Hi, hi, Buck, uh, the articulate one. Um, I really enjoy listening to you because you're um, you 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 wind yourself up pretty good before you make your points. But but the question I had is, I just recently learned that Rod Rosenstein can actually be impeached by Congress. I mean, the president isn't the only public official who can be impeached. Who else can be impeached? Can Robert Ray be impeached? Can Jeff Sessions be impeached? Um, I, because I, if nobody else wants to do their job, maybe Congress should. And and I would love to get a head count on where all of our congressmen stand on this issue. Well, I can tell you one thing: federal judges can be impeached, which is not something that people really think about or ever ever use. But I, I think we, I think we may want to give that a second a second look, uh, because what you're seeing are federal judges think they're completely impervious. Make the law up as they go along. They're, they're as much a problem as some of these deep state elements we see in the DOJ itself. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that there's these processes were put in place for a reason. Just because people don't use them that often or there's not that much public familiarity with them, it doesn't mean that they don't have a, a role. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, wait, yeah, that's right. In 1876, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Secretary of War William Belknap for what the U.S. Senate described as a pattern of corruption. Uh, and that was the only time in uh, 200 plus years of the Constitution that an executive branch official other than a president has been impeached. So uh, a, a lot of other folks can be impeached. Uh, I don't know the full extent or I can't give you a list off the top of my head, but they don't, they aren't, though. They aren't. Isn't that interesting uh, that that yeah, guy? I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking that up, Tom. Yeah, that's, what I'm, yeah that's, that's an important question, by the way. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Steve Man Shields. Hi. Great to talk to you. Appreciate it. So, where was I? Oh, hello. By the way, Ari. Uh, no, not Ariana. Ariana, that's different. No, no. I'm talking about um, Christian. They've now decided that Christian Paul will be replacing Charlie Rose. A woman who's built an incredibly lucrative career on sounding like this. I don't know anyone who actually speaks this way, but Christiane Amonpoul has made it her life's work to sound exactly like this. It's how she does things. Hello, could you put some extra cheese on my In-N-Out burger? I do not like the fries unless they are In-N-Out Animal style. Double, double animal style. That's what they call the fries at the In and Out Burger. Animal style is um, uh, like Thousand Island sauce with uh, onions, I think. Something else. It's not actually, it's like secret sauce. Point being, she's got the big show over there. Oh, by the way, since we're having some fun, Hillary. Hillary's out there blaming stuff still. Play clip one, please. The only way we will get sexism out of politics is to get more women into politics. And that's true in the United States, but it's also true around the world. The research is pretty clear. For men, likability and professional success go hand in hand. In other words, the more successful a man becomes, the more people like him. But with women, it's the exact opposite. And it's because Hillary the more was so likable. successful we are. All right, we get it. We get it, Hills. We know, we know. It wasn't your fault. Put that on the list. There's like 30 things. One day I'll just go through the whole list of all the reasons Hillary lost that are not Hillary. It's astonishing. Let's talk about uh, this Black Lives Matter moment that's going on at Harvard University. That is coming up. I drink coffee every day. In fact, more than once a day. It's something I look forward to no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing. And that's why Black Rifle Coffee is my coffee company of choice. You should check them out. These are guys who are veterans. They care about America. They love this country. And they're all about empowering their fellow veterans and entrepreneurship. And they make delicious coffee. I get it delivered. I'm actually a member, a subscriber to the Black Rifle Coffee Club. That's right. I'm fancy. And I get it delivered to me in K-cup form. You can get it ground. You can get whole beans. Um, It's delicious. They really care about their small batch roast-to-order coffee. And they really care about this country and building a great American brand. Try them for yourself. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. Use the coupon code BUCK15. 
That's Buck15. That'll give you 15% off. Again, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. Coupon code Buck15 for 15% off. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. My friends, I'm coming to you live from Dallas, or actually just outside of Dallas, visiting the uh, the former mothership here at uh, Mercury Radio Arts, uh, home of the blaze, uh, the one and only Glenn Beck. So it is uh, like... Always a. It is like I don't know what just happened there. All of a sudden, I went into valley. Like whatever. Like it's like so. Like oh my gosh, I think I told you all that I was stuck on a train recently, and I had a, a young woman behind me, and I've just I'm still traumatized by like oh my gosh, like whatever. It's like they were like like the Kaisai boys were like throwing this party, and like they were drinking like all of this like like jungle punch and like they were getting so drunk off of it and I was just like oh my gosh like are you for real like I was so tired AF and I was just all like oh my god I don't know how anyone speaks that way and doesn't just have an aneurysm I don't know how it's possible I'm just trying to tell it the way it is so much energy and so much uh, so much output because like your voice like I do radio and if you're gonna talk like this like all the time it's like so much energy you know I like when I'm actually hanging out with people I tend to talk a little more down here you know, I tend to have a, a an, an easy tone of voice not just for the listeners around me I don't want to blast out their eardrums but also I don't like to have to project really loud you know, unless I'm doing radio voice. Hey, Buck Sexton here, live, coast to coast, across the nation. This is one of the best things from Parks and Rec is uh, Crazy Ira and the Douche. Crazy Ira! If you haven't seen... I'm just telling you this, and I have a real story to talk to you about in a moment, but if you haven't, go on YouTube and watch The Best of Ron Swanson, and it's like seven or eight minutes long, and... Also watch uh, Crazy Ira and the Douche from Parks and Rec. It's a, it's a sketch they only did a few times. It's a scene really from the show, but you'll some of the jokes that I will make here will reference those things, and I, I promise you, you will find them amusing. I mean, Ron Swanson is one of the greatest TV characters of all time, and as a conservative, if you're listening to this show and you are a conservative, which I'm assuming most of you are, not all. We got some great we got some great lib listeners, and you know what? Hugs, my liberals. I like having you on. I like have, having you on the show too. You know, I, I always appreciate how at different times in this show's history, um, I've had people reach out to say, "Hey, you know, I disagree with you on transgender issues, but I am in fact uh, transgender, and you know, here's where I think we should talk about this, or here's what I'd like you to know." And I, I like that. I like the people who don't agree with me listen, but whether you agree with me or not. Parks and Rec has some really great stuff, and the crazy ire and the douche. As somebody who works in radio now, I feel like y- you have to have some background in that. Uh, you have to know about crazy ire and the douche. Crazy ire. Hey, welcome to the douche nation. That's just, it's it's such a great send up or parody of of what a lot of people actually do on radio. Uh, so like whatever, if you're gonna do radio, you should like not like talk like this. One of the big problems I have actually with a lot of people who think that they should be pundits or talking heads, and this is male and female. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, this is not a gender thing, but the amount of like talking that goes on, like I mean, you know, like it's like you know, like there's so much of that still. And I, I will say that there have been a few times in my life where I was forced before I got into media to look at video of myself talking about an issue 
and here here's one here's one little tip that I'll give to any of you. I know a lot of you listening are like, "Buck, please, you know, I've got a I've got a PhD in awesome, and I'm an amazing speaker and all that, and, and that's fantastic." You know, for a lot of people, public speaking is a fear. You can imagine for somebody who started out doing this as a kid, well, not doing this, but somebody started out doing this as in doing life uh, with a speech impediment. It's quite a transition to become a radio host over time. Uh, but. <laughs> One of the most important things is to take to actually stop and think about what you're going to say. It's okay. I think a lot of younger people, a lot of millennials in particular, have this thing of I I need to keep speaking because there's almost a nervousness if they were to stop for a moment. So for those of you who have kids, I can tell you that when I have kids, which will hopefully be in the next few years, uh, plural. Wow, I just went there. Kids, plural. Um, I will try to tell them as much as I can. You, when you're talking, you don't have to rush. You know? So take your time when you speak, unless there's some reason, right? I mean, if the house is on fire, don't be like, so I think I am smelling smoke. And I think that it is perhaps a good time to evacuate this domicile. But I'm not sure yet. But I think, you know, you don't want to do that, obviously, as you know. Um, so that's one bit. Take your time including in between sentences to think about what you'll say next. It's been very helpful, I find, on radio. And the people that I that I like to listen to the most, whether podcasters or radio people, do very little filler speaking. Very little, you know, like, I mean, like talking like this and uh, um, and like, you know, see, I just did a little bit. And it for a lot of you, I think it would probably be an, an obvious switch or change up from my usual cadence and style. And that's that's deliberate. Not that I'm obviously, I wish I could be perfect with this. I wish it sounded like I was just giving you exactly the words that I wanted all the time. I, I'm not quite that skilled, but I don't, I, I don't know anybody who's really able to do that for a few hours at a time. Um, but it reminds me of uh, the best advice I ever got about driving was don't change your driving for anyone else. And it was actually given to me by a friend of mine who I don't think has much other good advice to give. But I was very young and it always really stuck with me and I thought about it. And there were a lot of times when I feel like if I hadn't heeded that advice, really bad things could have happened. Um, And then what I'm saying is just to tell, especially younger people out there, take your time when you speak. We all have a, a tendency. I think it's magnified by these devices and our connectivity and social media and so, 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 click, 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 so, 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 that, no, it's when you're speaking to someone, you're communicating to another human being, whether you're in person or you're using a, a medium like I am, radio or TV or whatever, take time with what you're saying so that it can both be said and processed in the way it's meant to be. And that, that you don't feel like there is any any sense of rush going on with it. So, uh, yeah, bits of, bits of buck wisdom that come out during the show, things that I remember. Don't tra- So the don't change your driving thing, um, and a lot of you are like, Buck, I've been driving since I was 12. I started on like, you know, my my dad's uh, my dad's truck and like I, I can drive anything anywhere. I know I'm a city boy. I get it. I learned how to drive. and It was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to kill anybody. There are all these people on the streets and the bicyclists are crazy. And that's right. Bicyclists, you're crazy. Uh, but, you know, when you, I think you get into trouble when all of a sudden Somebody wants, you know, you, you're supposed to pull into a lane and you feel like you're taking too long and you lurch forward because you feel pressure because, you know, that's when, when I think people make mistakes. Other than the distracted or, or drunk driving, which is obviously the, the worst kind of stuff. Um, but take your time when you speak. 
Oh, in sports, so a really good bit of advice I got, and I wish I got it when I was younger. Uh, and this came from my older brother, actually, who was a very good athlete when we were younger. He was teaching me. He taught me how to play sports, really. Um, but when you get the ball, whatever the sport is, look up. Because there's such a focus on, oh, I have the ball, I have the ball, and you just kind of get caught up in whatever. When you get the ball, it doesn't, whatever the sport is, vision is everything. Uh, when I say ball, hockey, you know, whatever it may be, right? Uh, so puck, <laughs> I just referred I just referred to a puck as hockey. I'm sorry. I, I told you, I'm not good with the sports sometimes. Basketball, football, soccer. I mean, I was, I was a very good soccer coach, I'm just going to tell you. I know soccer is not really a sport in America, but I was a very good soccer coach. Uh, I, I probably could have made a career out of just doing that. I'm just saying, high school soccer coach, I'm... I'm thinking I probably could have had quite a run. I did it for one year. We were 11-1-1, and went to the semifinals of the city championship in New York City. I'm just saying, first-year coaching. But the some sports I know a lot better than others. Uh, I do not know hockey, and I uh, do not know lacrosse either. But in, in all these different sports, wherever there's a ball or something that's moving from player to player, look up. Uh, that's a little bit of other random wisdom. Wow, I really was going to tell you about a news story, and I got... Uh, sidetracked into some buckisms here, but hope hope you enjoy them. That's what we'll be doing more of, I think, on the uh, Freedom Hut podcast, which we're hoping to get off uh, off the. I was gonna say off the shelf, but it's not really a shelf thing, right? Get it off the ground. There we go. Better analogy. Get it off the ground next week. At least that is that is the plan right now. And so, assuming that that is possible, uh, then we'll be running it and we'll see what you think of it but it'll be a little bit more of the style will be a little more like this like we're just hanging out and I'm talking to you about things news history stuff philosophy books buck stuff that's basically what it's going to be all right when I come back I've got a story for you about just how crazy things can actually get on college campuses these days how desperate they really are to find some kind of a progressive cause to rally behind you would think that in some instances it's so clear what has happened it's so clear who's on the wrong side of the situation that no one could be confused well when it comes to a minority student's interaction with cops at harvard in cambridge and uh, massachusetts oh there are people who are still deciding that no matter what was going on, no matter how out of line this student was, no matter how aggressive he had been with police, this is now supposed to be a teachable moment. And teachers who don't fall in line, who wants to take a guess, they are punished. They are ostracized. And this is at Harvard, the most elite university on the planet. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Nine Line Apparel is a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand. These are guys who are concerned with giving back to their community, with supporting veterans, and supporting the families of the fallen. That's why they have a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to the children of our nation's fallen. And if you go to NineLineApparel.com, you can get a Remember the Fallen Memorial Day shirt. And with each shirt purchased, you have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier. These heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. So please support our fallen heroes. Support Angels of America's Fallen, the children, uh, the charity that Nine Line is working with. 
Go to NineLineApparel.com to get this exclusive Memorial Day shirt and all of their other patriotic apparel. Even for the craziest social justice warriors out there, I, I, I like to think that there are some outer limits. I like to think that they have some baseline of this story is just too obviously not a good case study for us, and so therefore we're not going to try to make this an issue. But this this one out of Harvard is is pretty amazing. And, and Heather McDonald, I give her credit for writing about it in a way that would clearly upset the social justice warriors. Um, but here's here's the piece. The Black Lives Matter movement may no longer have a megaphone in the White House, but academia is more than ready to take up the slack as the ongoing policing controversy at Harvard University shows. Now, you're probably thinking, Buck, what what policing controversy at Harvard? What policing controversy could they be talking about? Well, about a month ago, uh, on a Friday night, Campus police were receiving calls about a student who was causing some problems in the middle of one of the most busy intersections of all of Cambridge. And so the police show up, and sure enough, there is a 21-year-old there named Salorm Ohane, who is from Ghana, so he's Ghanaian, and Salorm was high on LSD and naked, and he had thrown his clothing into the uh, face of a female passerby. So this guy's running around high on drugs, butt naked, in a busy intersection in Cambridge, right in the neighborhood of, of Harvard. The police get get called, and uh, they have to take this guy down. So... Uh, you know they they had they tried to initially handcuff him and they there was video taken of this and one officer tackled him from behind and then o- o- ohane uh i think is how you say his name he starts flailing around and and he's you know obviously not not going quietly and sure enough uh this is now being treated as some instance of extreme you know police brutality people are saying that this is a case that shows you know how many how many problems there are here and uh, and how how racist the cops are overall all, all the stuff that you've you've heard in the past and you know at, at some point I, I just have to say if if the if the real standard that black lives matter is going to put out there is that you are allowed to just tell a police officer, I'm not getting arrested today. And that's a defensible position. I don't know what we're supposed to tell cops and law enforcement across the country. I, I also can't help but note that this story uh, out of uh, Cambridge, you know, you know, out of Harvard University, I keep saying Cambridge, really at Harvard, it was right next to Harvard. Uh, and, I, and he is a... a, a, a uh, he is a Harvard University student, so this is why it's getting so much attention. You have a an African, I, I don't believe he's African-American, I believe he's from Ghana, right? He's not of Ghanaian uh, heritage. So you have an African student at Harvard who's tackled by cops when he's naked, high on LSD, and not complying. And they're saying this is police brutality, this is a bad thing, right? Uh, and I, I, I got to tell you, 
having watched the video and, and seen the facts of this, you come away from it just saying, what are the cops supposed to do? What are are they are they not allowed to use force to subdue someone? This is maybe a reminder for the liberals out there that the state is force. And now they know that when it's force they like. But it's a reminder that whenever the state is told to intervene in something, there is the implicit threat of force behind it. Because if you do not comply with the state's directives, and I mean both the state at the you know 50 states level as well as the big S state, there will be force used against you. This is just the way that it is. Um, and you have these Harvard administrators now weighing in on this. I mean, President Drew Gilpin Faust announced via email this was profoundly disturbing and comes during a period of increasingly urgent questions about race and policing in the United States. It raises questions, she wrote about whether people from all backgrounds and life experiences can come together confident in their ability to do their best work in a safe, supportive, and constructive environment. This is what you expect, I guess, now from all these different different administrators and bureaucrats on college campuses. Never never telling people, you know what, if the police tell you you to, to put your hands behind your back or to lie down or whatever, if they're if they are making an arrest, comply. If they rough you up while they're making the arrest and you are complying, you will have the opportunity to sue the pants off them later. Comply. And because otherwise what we have is anyone can just resist arrest. And where does that lead? Uh, this, this Harvard Law School dean, by the way, John F. Manning, uh, wrote an even even more scathing interpretation of this. He wrote, quote, what occurred last night reminds us again of troubling questions about the relationship between police and the community nationwide and particularly encounters with members of the black community. Uh, you know, I, I just have to wonder, what, what do they think the cops were supposed to do here? So now you're allowed to be naked in the middle of the street and throwing things at people and high on drugs, and cops are not allowed to tackle you to the ground and arrest you, I guess. You know, you look at this, what is the alternative here to what the cops did? They're, the answer is that this is just, there's so much liberal hysteria there's so much cowardice now in the progressive movement to just speak the truth that it's becoming a parody of itself that's what's really going on i also can't help but notice that this incident's getting so much attention because it's a harvard university because it's a black student at harvard university you know i i and you remember this from the show when i think that the police use excessive force i say so when i what happened for example in i believe it was arizona now i wrote about it almost a year ago i think maybe nine months ago, uh, where that young man was shot in the hallway by the uh, officer with the with the AR, and they were giving him all the crazy commands, you know, hands behind your back, legs crossed, don't lose your balance, touch your nose, touch your toes, do a cartwheel, and then the guy just wasted him at close range, the cop. Uh, that was excessive force to me, and that was why the DA charged it. So I, I don't see if you're just defending the cops reflexively, but what I see at Harvard and these other places, certainly in this case at Harvard University, is the reflexive defense now of the Black Lives Matter thesis, which is that cops are racist, that every interaction between a member of the black community and any police officer is inherently racial and has all kinds of of, of baggage that it brings to it and cops are not doing a good enough job. To defend that thesis, the president of Harvard University will defend the most egregious and obvious case of 
a student being out of control because to speak the truth about this is just too hard for them now. I feel like I've been doing a lot of travel lately, team. I'm uh, down here in Dallas. In fact, I am visiting the uh, one and only uh, Glenn Beck, who was the guy who brought me into this industry years ago. And I, I still remember uh, the first time I filled in on Glenn Beck's radio show. I still remember when Glenn actually called in when I was filling in one time just to say what a great job I was doing on uh, his radio show. And I spent, gosh, six years, six years with the Blaze uh, and, and had a, oh wait, was it seven years? No, it was six years, <laughs> six years with the Blaze and had had quite a run, uh, really enjoyed it. And it's just, it's so nice to come down here and and see all the see all the different folks. Uh, see people have gotten married, having babies. You know, I've only been gone a year, but it's amazing what happens in a year. I haven't been down here though in a probably eighteen months, I'd say. So uh, to those of you who are who are Glenn fans, obviously Glenn's going strong. Uh, things are uh, things are very dynamic right now, and it's just nice to see everybody. I don't know. It was just kind of fun to see the whole squad. So, and it brings back all kinds of memories coming down here to Dallas to do, Oh gosh, uh, do the 2012 election. I'm actually really close to right now. Um, you know, or the studio here is right next to the big, big studio where we sat and I'll never forget. Uh, <laughs> we had, we had a bunch of, of people from all over the place. Uh, the Blaze, obviously, Will Kane, Essie Cop, Amy Holmes, uh, Pat Stu, Glenn, uh, Dana Lash. I mean, all, all kinds of folks back. I, I think Dana was there for the 2012 election. Uh, all kinds of folks back in 2012. And, you know, I, I remember just believing as we walked around. And it was one of these things where my confidence certainly outweighed my predictive abilities. But I saw Glenn in the hallway outside of the of the big main studio down here at uh, Mercury Radio in, in Dallas. And I said, I said, you know, Glenn, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. This is what I said to him, right? I said, you know, Glenn, Romney's going to win this thing. Um, and uh, that was not the case, <laughs> as we found out. Later on that night, uh, it wasn't even close, and and I remember when it was all said and done, I may have let out a little bit of a of a profane statement of disappointment, and then I realized I'm like, were all the mics off? They were, they were. It was fine, but it was a reminder to me of one. Uh, I was very disappointed. I, I was disappointed for the country, and I'm not somebody who thinks that Romney was some kind of savior but i just thought it would it would have been better than another four years of obama but anyway election night i was down here and uh i just remember so many times trying to not get lost driving around suburban dallas and somehow i'm I'm always on the wrong access road or merging onto the wrong highway here total total city slicker buck in effect and then uber came along it was a life changer i was like just put it in the gps put it in the gps didn't have to make it my problem anymore, which is just great. Uh, so, anyway, it's a, l- a lot of memories. A lot of memories down there. I remember the first time I came down and, and actually saw this facility. Um, man, it's uh, it's kind of fun. It's fun to come check it out. And, uh, you know, I never moved to Dallas. 
which just was kind of happenstance, mostly because my family was in New York City and and I'm a New York City guy. Uh, but it was certainly, uh, it was close a few times. I really thought about it. I was like, you know, no state income tax in Texas. I can actually have friends who agree with me politically. Wouldn't that be a nice change? Uh, and I could probably get enough space to get the yellow lab that I've always wanted. And I could own an, not just an AR-15, but whatever firearms I feel like without having to go through all the crazy processes in New York City, which, you know, it's just a nightmare. So anyway, it's fun. A, a little bit of memory lane. And, and it's also just, if you don't mind, if you'll indulge me, it's fun for me because it reminds me of some of the times that I got to meet some of you who are probably still even listening to this show. Uh, old school, original Saturday Squad, Team Buck folks who came to some of the live events here in Dallas, some of the uh, audience shows that we did. And, uh, and that was always re- that was always really cool. It was uh, something that I, I will always remember, uh, to be sure. So it's kind of fun down here. It's been a nice, nice little change of pace. Tomorrow I, I go back to the swamp, of course, because we know that it's going to be swamptastic there, especially after what happened today with the the nuking of the nuclear deal, as everyone has been calling it, uh, the nuking of the nuclear deal. So that's that's kind of what we got, team. I uh, I just wanted to take a little stroll down memory lane here from the Mercury Studios in Dallas. Uh, I just want to also say thanks to uh, Glenn and the whole team down here for continuing to treat me like uh, I'm part of the extended family, even though I'm technically no longer uh, an, an employee. I no longer work for the Blaze or for Mercury. Uh, but it was really, it was like, slipping into a warm bath down here with a nice glass of g4 tequila in my in my hand so uh, you notice product placement how i get that in there that's how i roll all right we, we got to get to speaking of roll let's get to a roll call that is up next all right you know what time it is time to hear from all of you with the latest edition of roll call if you want to be a part of this extravaganza on the air you know what to do team just write at officialteambuck at gmail.com or Facebook, le Facebook, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And with that, we get into it right here. Um, I just heard your, this is Bobby who writes, I just heard uh, your rant about robocalls. I agree, by the way. Shortly afterwards, a piece came up on Yahoo that you might be interested in just in case you don't know this already. Uh, and it says, how to block the annoying robocalls you keep getting. Anything that would stop. Hi, it's Candace from the Reward Center. Anything that would stop that from happening, I'm into it. I actually have an app on my phone that has been doing a pretty good job of stopping them. I'm a user of the app. In fact, I, I might reach out to the company and say, hey, since I'm a user, maybe we should get some of Team Buck to use this thing, too, because I just bought this on my own. And uh, I'm not going to name it right now because we may have to reach out to them and say, look. This is a thing that's, it's to me, it's worth the two or three bucks a month to not have. I was answering my phone three or four times a day sometimes, stopping what I'm doing, getting up, because it was landline and cell phone, you know. Hi, it's Susan from the Reward Center. You've qualified to win a cruise. Like, no, I haven't, Susan. You're a liar. Stop. You're lying. I don't want to hear it anymore from you. But I love you. No, you don't, Susan. Cut it out. You're just making it up as you go along. I thought we were friends. No, Susan, stop it. From the reward center. 
All right, Mark is up next. Uh, oh, <laughs> I swear I wasn't planning this. This is this is just what Mark happened to send me. I downloaded an app called Mr. Number, which helps block most calls, but they still go to voicemail. I've decided to just let my inbox fill to capacity so they can't leave any more voicemails. I hear you, man. Look, this is what I was saying about the the SEC, or the, oh, not the SEC, like I'm doing insider trading nonsense. No, the FCC. Uh SEC isn't that also the athletic conference? You have the Securities and Exchange Commi- uh, Committee and or Commission and the Southern South or Southeastern Conference. I guess I don't know. I do not. There's some. I have some deficiencies, folks. I do not pretend that I am without deficiency. And uh, one of them, to be sure, is that I do not know anything about college sports. So I will not. E- I will not even pretend. All right, back to uh, Aries. Um, writes props to uh, props on your diehard quote. It took me a few seconds to picture the scene, so that was pretty good to pull that out. Um, so, well, thank you, Aries. I appreciate that. Yeah, Hans, this is this is radio, not television. Uh, for those who don't remember, Ellis, not Judge Ellis, who just slapped down Mueller's out of control rogue elephant probe, trying to take Trump down. But Ellis is kind of the smooth-talking, bearded salesman from Die Hard who uh, does not end well for Ellis. Spoiler alert, does not end well. Hans, Bubby, I'm your white knight, he says. It does not work out that way. Uh, Next up, Timothy. Timothy writes, I love doing this. I love roll call. Buck Shields, hi. Just listened to your 7 May podcast and heard you read my message to your late movie quotes. Uh, please tell me you recognized one wi- a win for the Gipper. It's all uh, all American starring Ronald Reagan. Okay, there's a lot going on here, Tim. I got to read this. I can't read this on air because it's a little too complicated. But thank you. Uh, I will go back and read it when I'm not doing a live show. Bob, next up here, listening to podcasts on May seventh. My guess is if there was a breakthrough with North Korea, the media will credit Kim's sister. You saw them falling over her at the Winter Olympics. Just my guess, Shields High. Um, Bob, I don't think you're wrong there. I think there's a very real possibility you could see media decide that they will um, find anyone, anyone who is not Trump, and try to put any good things that come from this uh, nuclear negotiation with North Korea at that person's feet. So nothing is impossible. Uh, here when it comes to the media's lies okay a lot of people giving me different uh spam call blockers here uh, including edmund phone filter for robocallers it's called true caller he said it cut down his spam calls by 95 percent. all right edmund i've already got one that's been working pretty well um but uh I'll, i'll check out some of these other ones too because it really bothers me this is not something we should have to deal with now you know, I, they used to go after spam emailers, and there were huge fines, and people got in a lot of trouble, as they should, for just spamming email addresses all over the place. And and I think the same thing should happen here with these robocalls. Sarah, next up, May the 4th would not be a reference to Star Wars, uh, would, would be a reference to Star Wars, not Star Trek, Shields High. Sarah, I know, but you see, here's a little secret. I like to intentionally mess up Star Trek with Star Wars, because it gets all the Trekkies and Star Wars nerds really agitated. And then they say funny things. 
I, I think, I mean, personally, I think Star Wars is the better franchise all in, but the most recent Star Wars movies have just been complete garbage. Maybe, you know what, actually? I'm going to revise that. Star Trek is a better TV show than all but three of the Star Wars movies were as movies, but the first three Star Wars movies are better than the quality of the overall series of Star Trek shows there have been, such as Deep Space Nine, etc., etc., The Next Generation, all of that. That's, that's my complex, and I'm sure rather contentious Star Wars analysis that I wanted to share with all of you. So there, there you go. Uh, next up, we have Victor, who writes, Speaking of no plot, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi was horrible. Um, I can't, I can't uh, disagree with you. I think Star Wars The Last Jedi was a travesty. I think it was complete and utter garbage. I think that J.J. Abrams has decided to stop making good movies and make movies that will get him high fives at Hollywood cocktail parties, which is not the same thing. And it's a, it's a disappointment. It's a disappointment. Uh, the Flying Flies. This is from Eric. The Justice League. DC. Go figure. Okay, Eric. I don't really know what we're talking about there, but I like, I like the effort. How about that? Um... Michael is up next here. By the way, that guy was right about uh, Tijuana. I was going to correct the, you the other night, but too tired to bother. Well, excuse me, Michael. Doing the best I can. He also writes, it ain't Cinco de Mayo. It's Cinco de Mayo. You pronounce it like it's French more times than not. I know, man. I took French and not Spanish in school, so I mess up this one. But I, I corrected myself a few times. Michael needs to write back in when he has something nice to say. Michael's giving me a case of the sads. Um, here we... Whoa. Really? Okay. Caroline, thank you for the very, uh, very long email here. She writes, Hey, Buck, I absolutely love that you went there in discussing the new feminism and fish sex. <laughs> yeah, that is a thing we discussed on the show. As a conservative, I'm often asked, are you a feminist? And, in, and I will say, in some respects, yes, in others, no. As you may recall, I am a surgeon, and all through that process, I never felt any sexism against me. However, I think there are some ways in popular culture women get a raw deal. Um, Okay, and then this goes on at some length. Thank you very much, Carolyn, for writing this. I will read it in full and respond when I can, but I can't get through it all on the air right now. Jonathan, next up here, just watched Kickboxer and Drop Zone. Both solid, but no good one-liners for action movie quote Friday. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, Jonathan, Kickboxer is essentially the movie Bloodsport all over again. And the movie The Quest is essentially the movie Kickboxer doing the movie Bloodsport all over again and kind of merging some concepts from both of them. I don't know if you've ever seen The Quest because I, I was really a Van Damme buff for a while. Uh, I I watched a lot of Van Damme movies growing up. Obviously, Bloodsport is the peak. That's the pinnacle of the greatness of Van Damme. Uh, but there were some others as well. I saw C- Cyborg, which is a very bad, very bad movie. Uh, I, I cannot recommend you see that movie. I think also Van Damme injured a stuntman very seriously during the making of that movie. If you go back and look at the uh, some of the, the news of, of the day back in the day... 
I've seen Double Impact, where Van Damme plays himself, as in he's a he's a set of twins. Very bad movie. I mean, watchable. I'm not saying it's not watchable. A Cyborg is unwatchable, but but Double Impact is is actually pretty decent for what it is. But nothing compares to Bloodsport, which I think was made in like four days in Hong Kong on like a sixty thousand dollar budget or something. It was. Like a couple of dudes running around with camcorders being like, fly kick, fly kick, and Van Damme coming up with his own dialogue. So you can imagine what that's like. Hey, you want to be my friend? I am a ninja who happens to have a weird French accent who happens to be a part of the United States military. It's like, uh, what? How does that work? And the military's trying to track him down because he's such a valuable weapon. He's He's not actually like the bionic man. The whole movie Bloodsport really doesn't make a lot of sense, but... It's cool, though. I love it. It's great stuff. All right, we took up some of the time there for Roll Call, but the good news is we get more tomorrow. I'll be back in the swamp. So this is my one and only night in Dallas for this week, assuming all goes according to plan. Please send me your thoughts. Please do share the show with one friend this week. Do me that solid. Tell one person about what we are doing here so we can grow the team. And until next time, shields high.